Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but it's undermining an important aspect of our humanity, feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. Our special guest today is Dr. Esther Ron Bouchard, an American physician scientist specializing in pulmonary critical care medicine, asthma, genetics, and a variety of other subspecialties. He's the founder and director of the Asthma Collaboratory and the Center for Genes and Environment at Health University of California. He's a distinguished tenured professor in schools of pharmacy and medicine at UCSF and holds dual appointments in the Department of Medicine and the Department of Bioengineering and Therapeutic Scientists. Dr. Rashard, welcome to our program. Uh, uh, clearly your credentials meet my expectations and I'm uh, certainly are very impressive with other people. But having known you for a long time, I think once they understand not only your especially in commitment to a certain communities, but um, the way uh, you drifted along the way into this career, uh, I think is also quite impressive. So let's begin our discussion. Uh, tell us how our understanding of asthma has changed during your career. Well, thank you for inviting me, first off, and for the kind introduction. Asthma is the most common chronic lung disease in children. And what we've learned in, since I started this field in, in 1996. Um, I asked Yvonne, your microphone is, you need to turn it up quite a bit. Can you turn up your microphone? I, so I'm going to edit this anyway, so don't, don't worry about it. But I can barely hear you. Uh, let's see. Should I? Uh, yeah, that's a little better. Let's see if I can do something with mine. Let me turn the gain up on my Anything you can do to make it louder? Uh, let's try this. How's that? Yeah, that's a little bit better. But speak as loud as you can because of that part of it. I can increase the volume. All right, so let's start with the first question. Dr. Bouchard, tell us how our understanding of asthma has changed during your lifetime. Well, over since the since I got into this field in 1996, um We've learned that number one, asthma is the most common chronic lung disease of children worldwide. But the most important discovery that we've made is that it is a disease that has the biggest racial and ethnic disparities of any disease, including cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, you name it, asthma's got them all beat. And the populations with the highest prevalence and the highest death rates are Puerto Ricans and African-Americans. And the populations with the lowest prevalence 
are whites. And yet 95% of all NIH funding, the National Institutes of Health, which is a government agency funded by taxpayers, 95% of their dollars that focus on lung disease studies whites. So, but, but obviously uh, that's something that we really need to address. But in my lifetime, you know, when I first started, asthma was called a bronchospastic disease of the lung, characterized by cellular infiltration and mucus production. But now we know something that's a very different disease from that. Uh, can you explain that in some ways? Yeah. In the past, in, in your time, people considered asthma a, a monolithic disease. So they, that, means, that means what? So meaning that by monolithic, I mean that there's only one type of asthma. But what we discovered uh, as of today is that there are different flavors of asthma. And the different flavors merit different drug treatments. And that's what we know that not every kid will have the same type of asthma and therefore not respond to the same types of treatment. What about the, what we call the pathophysiology? What causes it? Uh, how important is inflammation uh, in asthma these days? Inflammation is the key component of asthma. And, and um, that is the end result. But what we don't know is what causes the inflammation. We know that it is heritable, meaning that it runs in families. We know that environmental factors cause it. And we know that social factors, stress, neighborhood violence, all contribute to increased inflammation. When you talk about asthma, how do you explain the poor outcomes for people of color and the underserved? Is it because we are different in some ways? Well, my honest opinion is it's all uh, uh, socioeconomic status or access to care or built-in racial discrimination within the system. Um, Low-income folks, minority folks, usually do not have access to the top-line medications. So, for example, one of the best medications, blockbuster medication that's just come out for asthma, called Dupilumab, cost $48,000 per year. That's more than the average minimum wage salary for a working parent in most states in the United States. And so you're saying that part of the process is the fact that we aren't getting the same level of treatment. That's the so-called health disparity. It's a health disparity. And it's, it's generally been accepted, but it's a racial disparity. But the question always comes up in situations like this. Is this, in fact, the fact that we're different somehow and that the medicines that we're given are often not effective for uh, certain populations. That's been almost your life's work, right? Yes, that's clearly a component of it. So we know that uh, different racial groups have different physiology and different blood parameters. And what we demonstrated for this one drug, Dupilumab, the, the drug that just came out, it's the blockbuster drug, the eligibility criteria are different if you are African-American, Puerto Rican, 
And we demonstrated, and we just published this week, that a 50% of African-American children with moderate to severe asthma do not qualify for the drug based upon blood parameter criteria. 27% of Puerto Ricans do not qualify. So here you have populations, two populations, with the highest prevalence and the highest death rates from asthma, and they don't qualify based on their blood parameters for this new asthma blockbuster drug. So you're saying, and not to focus only on the drug, but the different ethnic populations uh, not only have maybe different types of asthma, but have different responses to any medication, not including the new biologics. So we have not done a head-to-head -head comparison of, of African-Americans versus whites, for example, on the biologics, because it's really not in financial reach for African-Americans. But what we do know, for example, is uh, the um, medication called Zolaire, when it's given to African-Americans, when it's given to whites, it works the same in both. But what we published is that the most commonly used drug, albuterol, works differently in whites than it does in African-Americans and Latinos. Now, that's a very significant statement because without question, that's the drug that's used most often uh, in the treatment of asthma, sometimes overutilized. But, but you're saying that certain populations don't respond to it in the same way. That's right. That's what we published. We've demonstrated that multiple times in, in several different studies, that African-Americans and Puerto Ricans have lower drug response to albuterol, which is the most commonly used asthma medication worldwide. What about some of the social determinants of uh, health? How important are they uh, in determining outcomes? They're very important. And could you explain what some of those are? Well, first off, I want to say that they're complex. They're complex in that we know that poor neighborhoods have poor environmental conditions. So poor folks are concentrated in areas that have high levels of air pollution. That is clearly a factor in asthma. We know that neighborhood stress, whether it's crime, violence, particularly like we're seeing here in East Oakland, that is a big contributor to making asthma worse. It doesn't cause asthma, but it makes asthma worse. A child will get stressed from seeing uh, violence or crime and they might have an asthma attack, and that might that asthma attack might lead them into the emergency room, and it could lead to death. So that it's not just a matter of medicine. It's not just a matter of response to medicine. It's a matter of lifestyle as much as it is anything else. But what about research, and what role does it play? There's a push to eliminate race as a criteria in research, and if African Americans still have the third highest level. Uh, of deaths from uh, asthma children, uh, African-American women have the highest rates of mortality. How can race not be a factor? Well, race is a factor. I think that as a result of the uh, America's awakening with racism, particularly after the events of last year, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, many more events that there's a level of guilt 
and a level of political correctness to do away with race and medicine. And that's the wrong approach because we think that that's equally racist to ignore racial differences by disguising them all as everyone's the same. We're not all the same. Well, how can they get away with that? I mean, obviously, the impact of uh, the studies uh, show that African-Americans are disproportionately impacted uh, just because they're black. Now, it doesn't matter, from my perspective, whether or not they're self-described black or whether, you know, actually what the genetic uh, composition is. The end result is that this is a situation where African-Americans have less, uh, you know, better worse outcomes. And so how can you eliminate race from that as a criteria? I just don't, I know the argument, but I, I just it's so far from anything that I can imagine that, um, that it just seems to be so ridiculous to eliminate it. But it's being eliminated in a lot of different ways. You're right. And I disagree with, with that. I disagree with the elimination. Um, and that's something that I'm trying to do to educate the world on the importance of including race, ethnicity, and biomedical and clinical research. Now, we said at the threshold of new medicines, I mean, uh, how do you feel? Are you optimistic that we'll ultimately be able to deal with um, and, and cure asthma? And speak to us in a little more detail about the impact of not being able to access these biologics. And what that really means, in my estimation, so few people qualify for them that I don't consider them significant. Um, because if you look around in a practice when you see people contracting asthma, often they haven't been doing the things that you suggested that were said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely patient compliance is a key component of this. No, 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 no. Not compliance. Not compliance. We're not allowed to say that. Politically incorrect. Adherence. Adherence. Right. Clearly, adherence is a a key component. But some of these new biologics, uh, if they're made accessible to everybody, actually do work well. Yeah. So, uh, well, let's talk about let's talk about more and more detail your research on these biologics. You're about to publish a paper that says that they're not available to people for whom and you think the criteria for most people who don't know depends upon the number of one type of cell, uh, and that's the eosinophil. Uh, are you saying that the eosinophil is not a good indication of who's going to respond to this drug? No. So eosinophils are the primary criteria for choosing who should get the drug. But what we haven't done is we have not done the research to know what our normal eosinophil levels in African-Americans, Latinos, we've only done the research in whites. So we know what the standard is for whites. And we're trying to use that one size fits all approach for non-whites. And when they don't fit, they don't qualify for the medication. And when they don't qualify for the medication, the insurance companies are less likely to want to cover it. But even when there was no criteria for new medicines, uh, African-Americans, people of color, the underserved were always the last to get access to these medicines. Yes. Uh, and so consequently, this is really probably fundamentally no, no different. One of the most interesting things about talking and working with you 
uh, is your journey uh, to these kinds, this kind of research. Uh, I, I, you know, most people would feel, you know, you, you've achieved so much in so, such a little time that you must have come from a previous background where education was considered the norm and uh, got to jump on the process. But uh, I don't think that's your story. No, uh, quite the opposite. You know, I didn't have a father. Uh, my father left us when I was seven. I did know that he got his GED when I was in college. He was a World War II veteran, got drafted uh, to the war and didn't have an opportunity to go to high school. So that wasn't part of my pedigree. Uh, my mother was a school teacher, so I did know that education was a priority. She taught at Mission High School in San Francisco, which was a low-income school, and she led many of the uh, Latino groups and minority groups, student groups, when she was there as a, a counselor. Well, how did you get from there to where you are? I mean, the professor of everything over there. Uh, what was your journey like? Uh, it was a, a colorful journey. <laughs> Uh, you know, growing up in the Mission District in the 60s and 70s, which was highly, highly, San Francisco was highly racially segregated at that time, and it's still racially segregated, but there are a lot of gangs and uh, lots of violence and drugs. My mom used a distributed system to farm me out, and so one of the families that took me in was a, a Chinese family, and I actually went to Chinese school for two years. Uh, they te they were part of the uh, what are called family associations or what the the San Francisco gang task force was called gangs mafias, uh, but they were hardworking. I, I learned a lot of hard work ethics from them. And then uh, when I got kicked out of my first high school, I found wrestling, and I I wrestled in high school and college. And my coach was African American on the '84 and '88 Olympic teams, and so. He was also getting a PhD, so I had nothing but a better role. I couldn't have a better role model than someone who was brown and beautiful on the national level, you know, beating guys, national champion, getting a PhD. And that discipline of wrestling was like being part of the military, losing weight, being disciplined, delayed gratification. That ended up getting me into medical school. And once I got into medical school, I started opening up my eyes to all the colorful journeys that I've experienced in life, Mexicans, Chinese, African-Americans. And then I started looking at medicine and saying, does it fit with this population? Does it fit with this population? And I got beautiful training in genetics at Stanford. And when I went to Harvard and I got an opportunity to work with one of the world's leaders in medicines, we worked on a project studying the genes related to asthma severity between African-Americans and whites. And we identified a gene associated with severity that was 40% more common in African-Americans than it was in whites. And that's when I fell in love with what I do. Uh, I, I think that, that journey is an inspiration to a lot of young people who might be listening to our program. One of the uh, final things I'd like for you to comment on an article that I was able to read today uh, that's going to be on our newscast. And that's an article that talks about uh, institutional racism leading to unconscious bias in physicians. 
Yeah. What the article essentially said is many of our major universities uh, divide patients into two tiers. Those that are private, those that want to pay, uh, and those that come from other foreign countries to get unique treatments. Uh, and those are the ways in which they are rated by USA News and World Report. Then there are the other group of patients who are low-income patients, who they're committed to serve, but they don't serve in the same way. They're the ones that are go into the clinics with residents and interns and medical students, uh, and they're the only, often the only uh, African-Americans, Latinos that they see before they're in their formative years. And they form opinions about patients based upon the fact that they've been tracked into the educational system, and that's all they see. Uh, UCSF is no, no different from a lot of other universities in the sense that I've always wondered how universities that are actually major state universities could be, would be able to do that and, and seek and look only for paying patients, providing some services for underserved patients. I don't want to get away from that. But at the same time, still these two tiers exist, which leads to a concept of unconscious bias on the part of the trainees, because all they see is people from these different communities who are down and out or who don't have the resources that other parts of the university have, and they never have access to any of those patients. Yes, unfortunately, that's uh, a well-known fact that there are two tiers. There's one for the rich and one for the poor. And the way the article described it today was there was a fork in the hallway, and one fork was for the poor patients, and that tended to be where all the minorities went. And if you took the other fork, it tended to be for the wealthy and insured patients, and that tended to be whites. And unfortunately, all hospitals in America have that system. There, uh, in San Francisco, we have San Francisco General, which is primarily for, is almost 100% for the poor. If you're insured, you can't go there. However, if you have a trauma and get hit by a car, you'll go there whether you're the president of the United States or a common Joe Blow. Uh, and um, other places like Kaiser don't accept uh, poor patients. Now, they may accept them under certain circumstances. They're committed to do that by the state. I, do, well, not, I don't know. I'm speaking out of turn here. But, but I do think that what happens... I can remember when I first went to medical school. Uh, the first professor that I had was a renowned pharmaceutical professor. And in the first lecture in medical school, this was the 60s, in Texas, he still talking about morphine. He said morphine was a good painkiller and depressant in whites that causes negros and horses to be excited. This was in the lecture. Uh, and I just started a whole series of incidents like that through the medical school career. Now, most of us who were black in that school had grown up in segregation, so we were able to put barriers uh, in front of all that and, you know, ignore that even when my class uh, stood up and clapped when President Kennedy was killed. Uh, so that was the kind of environment we were in. But what stuck with me more than anything else was that every patient from our clinical years that we saw was poor and black. I mean, they were down and out. Or, uh, alcohol was a big issue for them. Uh, they had no resources. And every disease category that I saw, those were the patients that were presented to the trainees. And that didn't stop in Texas. When I went to do my internship in Los Angeles, 
it was very much the same thing. When I came back to San Diego to do, I mean, to El Paso to do my residence, it was that same thing in terms of Latinos. And when I um, when I went to do my fellowship, and what the, what happens with that, and I'm sure this is true, is that that is what formed the impression of the various ethnic groups by most of my white classmates. And I can guarantee you, they never, never got over that or changed, completely changed that perception throughout their careers. And I think that's one of the things that I remember most about institutional racism and unconscious bias, that many universities which train people now are training them, are, are kind of cesspools for this kind of, of person to, personal development and some of our doctors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you, especially uh, when you're, you're exposed to these biases in your formative years of your medical training. There is a recent report out of the University of Virginia a couple years ago uh, in which they surveyed first year, second year, third year uh, medical students and interns and residents. And the first-year students and the interns all thought that African-Americans had higher pain tolerance because they had dull nerves. And therefore, they didn't warrant any pain medications when they were having pain or surgery or any, any sort of uh, surgical intervention. And, and that was a publication in about 2015 so you take that and add it on top of the racial tensions that we got going on right now in America. We're no different than Jim Crow era right now. We have disguised it, but we're no better. You know, and I, I, I kind of agree with you. I think that if you really sat down with most of the physicians in this country who are not black, and ask what their perceptions of black folk people are, then um, you have, you're going to get a very interesting dynamic. I think that medicine, there are only about 4% of, of physicians who are African-American. And you talk about the fact that you aren't able, and, and then say, let's take a disease like asthma, when you really don't understand the lifestyle, you really don't understand the barriers that these children face or these adults face with asthma, and then how can you treat it as effectively as you would somebody who lived in Pacific Heights or Fifth Avenue. Uh, and what, what I see as a specialist, one of the few in my community, is I see some of the worst treatment given to some of the most exclusive patients of mine simply because I don't think that these doctors value the interaction with black patients as much. Uh, I don't think that that's changed very much, and I don't think so very much is changing it. Uh, and I think to a certain extent, in my experience, it also drifts over to African-American physicians who never get over the fact that somehow these patients are different from who you are simply because of where they are in life circumstances. Yes. We, we you know, we saw institutionalized and systemic racism bears an ugly head in, in 2020 and uh, crime has never been higher in the nation than it is now. Uh, and that's partly because we've had a divisive uh, commander in chief and leader um, 
and we're seeing the effects of that persist today. So one final question, what would you say to those people who have asthma living with it? Uh, what's the future look like? Well, I think that the field of asthma research, I feel that the, the, the rapidity with the, the rate at which new drugs are coming out is incredible. There have been about five new drugs in the last five years. They all work great. We have to work to get the cost down and make them equitable to everybody. We have to make sure that African-Americans and Latinos are included in the clinical trials that go in to test these medications. Um, we know for a fact that a lot of these medications were tested in whites only, um, and the results are generalized to non-whites, and that's inappropriate. We need diversity in our clinical research, particularly with asthma. All right, Dr. Esperman Bouchard, certainly thank you for the time that you've given us, and thank you for the contributions that you're making to the understanding of asthma and to dealing with the dynamics that keep uh, certain populations down and certain populations sick. So we'll talk again. Thank you. If you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.